My name is Becca McNeil. I'm a journalist and generally curious person wondering what's next for the group of folks affectionately known as the church. With sex scandals, megachurch meltdowns, and Trumpy troubles, are people giving up on Christianity? Or are there things worth holding on to? This is my podcast where we gather doubters, searchers, question askers, and healers to consider what's working and what's not in the faith traditions we grew up with. The goal isn't to find a new right answer or a how-to. The goal is to foster openness and curiosity, whether you believe it's time to build something new or burn something down. In this first season, we talk a lot about parenting. What do we want our kids to take with them? What do we want them to leave behind? We examine the role of parents, many of whom are grappling with their own spiritual questions as they walk with their children into this new day. I feel like with any kind of climbing, diving, all that, there's the kind of person who's like, that was something I lived through. And then the person who's like, that was the thrill of a lifetime. I can't wait to do it again. No, I feel you on that. It's interesting with some of our kids. It's like some do the thing and they're like, okay, I wasn't ready to do it again. And others are like, nope, I did that once. I'm totally okay. That was fun. Cute pictures. Great. I'm good (laughs) on pooping in the woods. (laughs) That is a great time to introduce my guest, Alex Bailey. (laughs) He is the co-founder and executive director of... Black Outside, which is an organization, a youth-focused organization getting Black kids reconnected to the outdoors. And that's an important part of the story of Black Outside that I really love and hope that you'll talk about is the long, connecting to a long history, uh, an ancestral connection to the outdoors. And I love that Mm -hmm. aspect of the work that you guys do, that it's not a taking a deficit mindset of giving people something they've never had before, but rather a reclaiming journey. And I love that so very much. I have asked Alex here to talk with me not only about his work, but also how that connects to the theme of the podcast, A New Day, which is about basically looking at the structures and the religions and faith traditions that we are coming from. And considering what do we want to leave behind and take with us and maybe reform, maybe reframe, but then also completely change some things as we head into our new day. I'm hopeful about the future of faith and spirituality. I have I get a little more cynical sometimes about religious structures, but I am hopeful that we can find a new day where people have a bigger sense of belonging, a more secure sense of belonging inside of faith and community. And I think that a lot of the work Alex does has a lot to do with that. And since this first season of the podcast is related to parenting and things we do for our kids, I thought it would be great to hear from somebody who is coming into this as a kid expert. <laughs> what we will <laughs> oh, call that's it. strong. <laughs> yeah, somebody who's been in the classroom, has been outside, yeah. <laughs> who sees a lot of different kids. I'm willing to call you an expert. <laughs> oh, that, that means a lot. Yeah, it's funny they asked us the other week, like, how many kids? Do you guys have kids? And I was like, I have like, I don't know, 174. They're like, what? I was like, it's a lot, you know, when you run a youth nonprofit. So, yeah, yeah. lots to keep track of. 
I feel like in some ways, the parents who are listening to that, it'll be great for them to get that perspective because so often we are caught with the like primary lens of our own kids mm-hmm. that they, everything either feels more cataclysmic <laughs> because it's yeah. like, my kid's the only kid who's not getting enough outside time or if my kid's okay, then every kid's okay. So we tend to be a little myopic by nature. Mm-hmm. And it's great to bring in people who are like, no, let me tell you about the 170 kid version. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and here's where your kid is not unique. And here's where maybe we still have more work to do together to make sure that all kids have what they need. Mm-hmm. But I really do also want to ask you about your personal faith journey, because I feel like that's one of the most interesting parts of getting people on the podcast is getting to yeah. hear what their new day is in faith and what kind of journey they're on. We can start there or we can start with the story of Black Outside. I'm going to let you pick because you know better what <laughs> what. Obviously, at some point, definitely intertwined. So uh, I guess we'll start with the faith journey. Yeah, so baptized at eight years old. Everything was great after that. No, no questions, anything. And then here we are. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so I think for me, in my faith journey, I would definitely say one of the the starting points or the impetus points was my stepfather becoming a pastor <laughs> at a church when I was eight years old. I don't think I was like socially, mentally, or physically <laughs> prepared for that of like, you know, I just, I remember my stepfather coming home and my mom was sitting like all of us down. That's me and my step siblings. I'm saying, okay, well, he's going to take over as like pastor of the church. And up to that point, like my mom and I had like gone to church a good bit, but like, you know, we were like at church, you know, like maybe two times a month, like pretty chill. She dropped me off at Sunday school. We didn't go every Sunday. I felt like we had a pretty relaxed relationship to church. And then obviously my stepfather became pastor. It intensified a lot, meaning like we were at church literally five out of seven days a week at minimum. I'm tired Uh, for you. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And, you know, seeing the institution of church behind the scenes of like definitely some highs, right? Of like beautiful community that was cultivated, but definitely also, yeah, a lot of like uh, a lot of pieces that of the church that you're like, oh, this is a lot. And with that, even on a personal familial level, I think like, you know, myself, like I, I think about like back to some of the things in my adolescenthood that I had to like sacrifice because it was like, either this or church. And then obviously church became first for our family. And so that was something I had to reconcile when I got older. I was like, man, like I had to stop playing basketball, organized basketball for two years because of church. Like the only sport I could have time for was football. Uh, so it really did like, like wind into a lot of things. I like music even. I wanted to learn an instrument, didn't have time because of church. So it just became this big thing. So I, I think with that, you know, as we tie into parenting, like, you know, I would say, and I, and I want to name too, like my mother was an amazing mom. <laughs> and at the same time, I do think like, you know, I always wonder from a sense of curiosity, to what extent was there a balance, right? It's like, you know, it's like church, church. And I think that happens sometimes in very evangelical families. It's like church will solve everything. But there's other world of a lot of connections outside of church that can really foster a young person's mind. So that's the grounding part, the opening scene of my faith journey right there. Yeah, you can see already the seeds of, of your future thinking about what else kids need and what our structures, schools, churches aren't necessarily built to provide mm-hmm. and giving them those things. Another theme that I have heard in other episodes of the podcast so far 
is the idea of the church requiring so much of its people that mm. there's no time for any of that. So yes. when the church, when the survival of the institution becomes the only thing that the people in the institution have time or energy for, and granted being the pastor's son, it's a little different. Like you are yeah. pretty close, but you hear these stories of like burnout from volunteers and stuff and people who can't have time to join an outdoor club or a volunteer organization or whatever, because everything they have to do has to be in the service of like being involved in church things and keeping the church numbers and activities and running the Bible studies and the right. whatever. And I'm just interested in that as a indicator maybe of institutional unhealth. <laughs> Yeah, quality control, right? People control. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, when you're just like, if it's taking all of us just to keep the organization afloat, what's the organization doing? Yeah, precisely. Because you know, it's not taking care of those people who are burning out. Right. And so that's a, those are two little germs of topics just already in your opening scene. Yeah. They're already like, aha, I see the future. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I think I'll name too, thinking about like equity and race, which was intriguing for me. I actually had the opportunity to, during Thanksgiving, I had not been back to Mitchell. So my church was in Battle Creek, Michigan. If you look at, at the bottom of any Kellogg cereal box, you'll see Battle Creek, Michigan. That's the claim to fame of my former hometown. And my mom actually worked for Kellogg's. It was a big thing. Like half the city works for Kellogg's. It's, a, it's known as a cereal city. But the point is like, I, you know, I remember the racial divide in that town, right, growing up. Oh. And yeah, and so it was interesting. My my stepfather was a pastor of a church, a very, like predominantly black church, predominantly meaning literally 99% black. Uh, and then there was Tony. Uh, and it was like four blocks uh, from Section 8 housing. And so there's like class and race. And then, so that was where our church was at. But like, my family lived on the other side of the train tracks, which I like. I had a chance to drive through this town in November when I was back in Michigan. I hadn't been since I was fourteen. It was interesting, like driving through again and like how much, not much had changed, and just like mm. I felt that. I felt like I remember the the, tra the railroad tracks and crossing those, and you're just like, okay, yep, I'm on the predominantly white side of town now. When the tracks are the literal divide, I mean, in a lot of cities, it's a river or a Thing, you know something else but when it's literally the tracks you're just like come on guys do you right. want to be a caricature exactly so i was always grappling or navigating these two worlds like you know the school i went to my elementary school i was literally one of two black kids it was me and adam woodson i remember him right like we, we got tony we got adam yeah it was literally us and, you know it's funny i remember the first day he like he braided his hair when uh like box braids were in and we were in fifth grade and Literally, he just walks up to me at recess and he's like, if one more kid tries to touch my hair, I, I was just like, man, I know I can imagine. Right. And so we were like, we we're super close. I think that like set the groundwork for my like lens on race and equity, because I remember like hearing this, the experience of like the schools that my friends at church Back in the day, we had textbooks. Pretty oh, young yeah. listeners, there's just things they used to like take home with you. Textbooks, it seems to are paper covers now. that you drew all over. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and we would literally compare textbooks, and I would, like when we were doing homework at the church, and it was just like, why is my textbook so much nicer than like my friends here? We're in the same grade, learning the same content, or just in general, as I like 
we, my stepfather was a pastor for, for six years. So for us, like, I just remember it progressively like growing and growing and that like, like as I got older, I was like exposed to more topics and things. I was like, why are y'all still learning this? I learned this two years ago. Like that inequity, that institutional yeah. inequity I saw firsthand. So all those things really informed my faith journey. It was like reconciling, right? Like, what does it mean for me to be in this space that feels like I have a lot of privilege because I go to a predominantly white school? Why is it do I have to be in predominantly white spaces to feel like I am somewhat more successful than others? Right. So again, there's these like big looming questions that actually, you know, now I'm saying it really started to tie in the black outside about creating and cultivating spaces that are that for, for black youth that feel so enriching and feel life-giving. So just to fast forward to lay the landscape, but Family, we stepfather similar burnout, steps out from being a pastor, and we ended up moving south to Savannah, Georgia. We moved from Michigan to Savannah, Georgia, which was like the biggest, like, just eye opening culture shock for me <laughs> that I, again, was not prepared for. So I, <laughs> I get down okay. there. Yeah. I've never been to Savannah. I've always wanted to see it. Right. I imagine it basically being a culture shock, even if you're from like Atlanta. Yeah, right. I imagine yes. Savannah being the most like 100% Southern culture that exists. Yeah, it really was. I remember joking with my mom at age 14 and saying like, are these, is this city still stuck in the Civil War? I don't understand. It just felt like you like go there and everything was moving slower. Everything was like, I don't know. And even just the fact of even like seeing Confederate flags. I think I'd seen like one or two before, obviously like driving through Ohio where my family's from. <laughs> But I was not prepared. This is going to shock you to this day, like in the context of like 2022 America. But I remember walking into my history class. This is the first day, Mr. Walker's class. He literally had the Georgia state flag that had the Confederate flag on it, like like a huge one right behind his desk and made me sit right next to it. I was like sitting under <laughs> while we were getting ready to learn about you ready for this? I'm I'm dead serious. The war of northern aggression. No. Yeah, and so the funny part was I had le- I we moved in like the middle of the year, I wanna say. Or no, towards the end of the year. So we I in my other history class, like in Michigan, we had already passed the Civil War. I get down to Savannah and he's like stopping the whole he's doing a whole six to seven week unit on it. Like, up in Michigan, we're like, ah, two weeks. Like, here's what happened. Like, it did this. Like, it its own, like, which can have its own baggage. Yeah, exactly. But, like, but I get, not so, nothing like what you were about to get. Yeah. Like, I get down south and, like, no, we're spending like seven weeks on this. We um, are very so, bitter. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Like and I was like, this is some strange stuff. I don't think this is like, I literally remember being like, I don't think this is historically accurate. But it was a, the coincidence was, it was a predominantly black school that I went to. Okay, that so, makes it feel abusive. Yes, yes. Like in hindsight, it wasn't until like later when I was taking my first education class in college, I was like, you know, I feel like I was like unpacking my trauma with my <laughs> education professor because I was like, you know, they're asking all these questions. How much your school? Like, I was like, yeah, I sat under a Confederate flag. And like, <laughs> and like I remember the professor being like, oh my God, to disrupt oh my this. Gosh, that's but yeah, so you see, it's like I was always living in this world of like, like dichotomies and grappling and where did these things, these two things that, that in ethos sometimes like don't coexist, but I'm at the intersection of them, right? Like, yes. like a Northern classroom, a Southern classroom. And here I'm like grappling with my identity as a black male. So yeah, I, you know, I think to, to fast forward of like bringing me closer to black outside. I, so we, we got to, when I got to high school, my mom, I think in like a lot of reflection did realize, you know, she's like, I want to give you like 
all, do do whatever you want to do in high school. Like you spent so much time at the church as like a middle schooler, right? Like you only get to go to high school once. So we ended up moving up to Virginia, going to high school outside of DC. And so I got to experience going from like suburban school in, in Battle Creek, Michigan to like quote unquote urban school in Savannah, Georgia to like suburban school again, but like more racially diverse. And so I get there and I'm like, okay, I feel like I can find my rhythm now. <laughs> and it helped me. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, there's some like black coaches here that I could talk to, but like still navigating a predominantly white space. So yeah. I think with that, that basically taking the foot off the accelerator of like faith from the sense of like, you know, we did join a church, but we weren't there. Like, we didn't join any extra things. My mom would just require me to at least go to Bible study once a month. But, like, besides that, she was like, you go do all these things. You go play football if you want to play football. You want to work out a bunch, go, like, do that. I got to play lacrosse. Like, my mom was very, like, encouraging me to, like, go do, like, things because, like, in hindsight, she was like, man, like, you know, your middle school, you were just at church, like, five or six days a week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so how do you balance those two things? But well, and as uh, a parent, I'm wondering if she was feeling this like I you constantly question like is the thing that I was hoping that this was going to do for you is it doing it for you? Right. <laughs> there has to have been that question of like I just watched my husband burn out. <laughs> yeah. Like what is happening to my kids? Mhm. Mm yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think about that a lot for folks of faith, you know, that do put a lot of pressure on their kids, do all the church things. And then it's like they're in this bubble, as many of us know. And then, you know, what usually happens, you get to college and they're like, oh, OK. <laughs> and they go to the other extreme sometimes, yeah. not all the time. But we all have our stories, right? <laughs> you know, one kid in college, you're like, my two parents were pastors. You're like, wow, yeah. you're really enjoying the college experience. Yeah, hand me a beer. My parents were pastors. Right, exactly. So lastly, I think like the part three of this like dichotomy world is I go to college, go to small school, Ohio Wesleyan. Coincidentally, it took two steps back in terms of diversity because I applied. And of course, I show up on diversity day that they had basically. And I was like, okay, there's plenty of students of color here. And then I show up on campus on like, you know, actually as a student, I'm like, oh, they got us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they got us. So, I, you know, going again, it felt weird coming from a school outside of D.C. to come yeah. to Ohio Wesleyan. But I ended up joining uh, some black student union organizations. So we had the opportunity to volunteer at a lot of predominantly black and within a lot of predominantly black neighborhoods or programs and partner with nonprofits. That was really eye opening again to explore these inequities that I was already seeing because I was like, man, these kids in East Columbus, Ohio, Again, I'm looking at their schoolwork, I'm looking at their textbooks, I'm in their schools, and I'm like, this is not the same as my experience, even outside of D.C. and Loudoun County, Virginia. So that was a, it was a very you know eye-opening thing. And then to the last layer on that, which I guess is the tide of Black Outside, is during this time, I ended up taking a job as a camp counselor at a super affluent, bougie camp in New Hampshire. And again, this camp was predominantly white, had the best three summers of my life. I worked there every summer during my collegiate, my time playing college football. And, you know, again, I saw these dichotomies. I'm like, wait a second, the kids that I get to volunteer with in Columbus, like don't have this opportunity to go to this amazing sports camp in the summer. How do I like reconcile those two things? So yeah, that's kind of like a little bit of the journey. I know it's kind of like winding road, but like, you know, when I get to college, I'm having this like thinking about like, 
obviously like what does an equity mean? And then I think I started to do these deep dives into why is why are faith based institutions doing more to solve these inequities? When you say Christian organizations are not doing anything about it, do they see themselves as meeting a need for Christian families? Mm. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. don't put the equity thing on us. We're trying to give parents this thing. Mm-hmm. And like, it doesn't have anything to do with equity. It's just that we can make this available and they need it. And like, we can't all solve this. It's not our wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. What is that felt need that they're addressing? And that's giving the, creating the wheelhouse or giving the pass to them in their heads on dealing with the inequity that it creates. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting for me. I always think a lot about uh, the parable like Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it's like, I think about that a lot because there's three kind of ways to consider it. And it's all ties to answer to your questions. Like one, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000 first, right? There's a hierarchy of needs that was being addressed. And he started off as like, man, these people are gathering around. They are hungry. They need to be fed. So there's that piece. Then there's a piece of then, like Jesus was like, all right, everybody's eating cool. Here's my message for y'all that we can give. But then like, there's a third piece that people don't realize is that those 5,000 people did not follow him. And so like, he didn't require like, oh, if I give you this food, then this, right? It was like, no, I'm going to feed you. Here's what I have to say. And then, you know what? We got to go. Let's roll it out to 12 people. And that's it. Like you notice in the story, it never says anything about these 5,000 people following Jesus anymore. Like he fed them. They probably sat there, heard the message. Oh, this guy's cool. Cool. Gave him some good food. This is great. All right. See you later. Good luck on your journey. Maybe we'll follow him later. Right? Yeah. It's not like the Forrest Gump running scene. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think about that a lot with faith-based institutions. How I think my push sometimes a lot of them is that they have lost the essence of like what especially like jesus's walk was from the sense of it's like we just got to get kids to jesus and and like first and give them this message and make sure they're you know some not all camps but there's definitely some that i've even seen where it's like here's a picture of all the kids crying and confessing and doing all these things and i'm like oh yeah throwing their sticks in the fire last night at camp laying down our sins yeah carry your sins up a hill you know and it's like (laughs) feels very guilt-based yeah oh yeah yeah it feels very guilt-based in, in, in that, but I think in the end, what I really think about is like, yeah, but was that like the need? Like, you know, you know? Sure, like, sure. That, yeah, like that message, sure, that's what you feel is fine, but what about the needs in your community? Like, what about the people? And obviously, like, not every campus is going to be able to save every single kid, and I say save in a very, like, intentional, weird way in there, mm-hmm. because I think that's the position that, like, some camps try to put themselves in. But when you remove that word save and say, how can we connect with more kids? How can we build more community across lines of difference versus feeling like you have to save all these kids? And a lot of times, I think that's like the first shift. And then when you think about connecting with people, you know, you're thinking about more on a human level. It's not just about them getting to your camp and signing a pledge just saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. Like this kid feels like they're discriminated against. They feel like they're not safe in their own neighborhoods. They feel like they're in a neighborhood that's over police. Like, how can we think holistically about connecting and supporting them starting with sometimes feeding the 5,000 does this family have like adequate food adequate housing and all those things some camps you know not all but some camps easily lean out of equity and inclusion discussions because they say I'm doing it because I'm you know bringing kids to, to Jesus versus 
like actually saying like, wait a second, like who are the kids that are here? And it doesn't even look like the communities that are near us. And I think right. that's a big question I've asked some camps. I'm like, you know, if I go to your camp and you're like 30 minutes outside of a, a big urban area and I'm looking and I'm like, wait a second, like there's barely any kids of color here. There's a gap there. And so you're not really actually reaching the mission, mission that you're shooting out for, you know? So the institutions camps being one of them, churches being another. I think we do a really good Western job of siloing like their purpose mm-hmm. and saying the purpose of this is to feed the soul. Yeah. And so it doesn't have the diversity purpose as though diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, whatever, all that is like a niche thing that should be left up to organizations that have that as their sole purpose. I think that a lot of people are starting to raise this issue of you can't cordon off your diversity committee or your, you know, your student success initiative at the college, your nonprofits that are solely working on equity, like as that with that as their mission, because they're not, that takes them out of the space where it needs to happen. Like we see it in churches where people will cordon off, like these are our social justice people and they have all these projects and stuff, but they don't let them in to the workings of the larger institution. And so it's like, you can't create equity out of nothing. Like the whole point is that you're connected to resources and you're equitably distributing these resources. But if we keep isolating them, then we're not connecting them to the resources of, in this case, like spiritual well-being mm-hmm. and we can talk about how you maybe at this point are re-envisioning spiritual well-being to be not so much like i cried and and confessed my sins and threw my stick in the fire but something yeah. a little more holistic yeah but also even churches and other religious nonprofits bristling at the idea that they should be doing more for the five thousand because that's yeah. They don't, they specifically chose a different mission. And I think it's interesting to rethink about the work of Jesus as that being core and essential to the mission, not like a little sidebar niche hobby part of the mission. Right. And so that's what came up to me as you were talking was how, I've heard so many organizations and honestly they pitch their stories to me as a journal. I'm a journalist and I'll get stories pitched to me about the amazing accomplishments of kids in this really wealthy school. Like it's really neat that this kid won this competition, regardless of the fact that their parents paid hundred hundreds of dollars per hour for them to be mm-hmm. tutored and coached and whatever. Right. I don't want to take celebration from any kids, but I also think that for me, those stories, when I see them and I'm like, if I can't ask the question of how does this increase out or improve outcomes or increase resources or benefit more kids more broadly, especially kids whose parents aren't funneling all those resources to them on the side. I'm less interested in it now, but also I'm more worried that we continue to allow that question not to be asked of us and see that as a like add on 
like a bonus pack you can buy, but not necessarily something that like that we're contributing to almost that you can be like diversity neutral if you're doing mm. some other good thing, right? even yeah. if it is contributing to this huge gap in the amount of resources poured into one group of kids as opposed to another. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said. What it really homey in was like diversity neutral, which, you know, neutrality doesn't exist. And then also feeling because you're doing the thing so well that like you don't need to rethink it at all if you're trying to bring in diversity and this is the push i've made to some camps it's like our camp is so cool and we're doing such good things if the black kids just come it's gonna be great we just gotta get them there and i'm like no like there's a reason why like black families aren't attracted to your camp like this is the culture of the camp if you go on your website and there's literally no people of color on your site you know i don't think like like many black families, some, but many black families would be attracted to that space, especially now in our current kind of like political social climate. And I will name this too, that I think this is not something I've said as much in public, but I'll just say it now. I think like what some camps don't realize too, is the black families that are signing their kids up for that experience are not doing it just because your camp is so great. Uh, A lot of it was with an end goal in mind. I'll be real. My mom sent me into white spaces because she's like, yeah, if you can navigate this predominantly white space, then I know you can navigate corporate America one day if you need to. It's like boot camp. Yeah, it really is. And like, I can attest that I know plenty of, especially like middle-class, upper-middle-class black families, not all of them, but I definitely know some that I can literally like call right now. And that is a reason for them sending their kid to a predominantly white school or sending their kid to a predominantly white summer camp is because they their end goal is not necessarily oh this camp's so great the school's so much better than like this other school some of that might be intrinsically true but it, it actually is in a way like they realize you, you look at the landscape and the arc of like a kid's life and you're like i need to ensure my kid knows how to like work across lines of difference and if they step into it, most corporate spaces or any larger institutions most of those spaces are going to be predominantly white and so how can they navigate that and we look literally right now what's happening in the nfl you have the nfl coach Brian Flores, that's like suing the NFL. It's like literally one out of 32 coaches are black. And, you know, and so he's having, he had to learn how to navigate this like very corporate structure once he was not a player anymore. That's fascinating. And it makes me think that we need to accept, and obviously this is where a lot of white people have a hard time, is that accepting that the world we live in is racialized and it is Mm. built with racial capital in mind. Mm Hmm. What function is my institution serving? Like, am I boot camp for how to be a white space? Or am I creating more opportunities and resources and actually investing in this community? Because it's one or the other. You're not, if you are giving something to people, the people that you are giving it to matter. Right. I don't want to take nice things from anybody. I'm a white person who wants to be able to go to retreats and be spiritually fed. But I do have to ask the question of, as a white person who's comfortable in most spaces and most white spaces and has resources to be able to get those things, for me to continually go and add to what's been invested in me, What is that doing to 
the balances of opportunities and internal resources, external, like both your cap, both your capital, your money, your network, your whatever, but also my internal resources, like the spiritual enrichment and health that's been given to me. And I think that's, that's something we don't talk a lot about because nobody wants to talk about that as an actual thing that is contributing to inequity. Mm -hmm. But it is like for some people to get to go and get their blood pressure down and Mm -hmm. focus and be able to do therapy work, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like who has access to counseling, (laughs) that kind of thing. And if we're doing all this stuff and it's good and it's great for whoever's getting it, it's a good thing. The question then becomes who's, who has access to the good thing and is there inequity being created because not everybody has access to it? And I don't think that Christ- that churches and Christian institutions see themselves as capital builders. But what your organization does that I love, and now I would really like to, for you to just talk about all of these things yeah. in light of a black outside, is looking at a holistic vision of spiritual well-being as Something that we should be looking at in light of we need access to this. We need to be very serious about who's getting this and and who's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of going to be an interesting segue into Black Outside a little bit because I think just responding to what you just said. Yeah, I think it's crucially important, too, that, like, that predominantly, like, folks – who are white, who are in predominantly white institutions, especially like raising kids, realize how critically important it is for their kid to be able to cross lines of difference because not realizing that a lot of times kids of color are asked a lot of times to cross lines of difference, racial difference, in order to navigate systems and institutions. And so having youth that have the, some some of that skill, right, already, especially youth who are white who are like, yeah, like, not in a tokenizing way, because I definitely met someone who's like, I went to an all-black school, so I know everything about being black. I've gotten a few of those, I'm just like, okay, <laughs> which are still not black, but, like, just knowing, oh, I've, I've had an opportunity to hear the experiences of, you know, a friend, and even if it isn't just, like, you know, so that doesn't mean it has to be, like, a sob story either. It's just, like, even just breaking the notion that, like, every black person is, you know, grows up in an economically under-resourced neighborhood. Like, like just the breaking that archetype up. Be like, wait a second. I went over to this my friend's house, and his house is just the same size as mine. It so, has an Xbox. Right, also has an Xbox, exactly. So uh, being able to break those notions. But, and so I think that's critically important. And I think I hold the truth also, time to black outside it, I think, uh, especially many black youth also deserve the same, like, spaces to be feel safe, especially as an entry point. And, you know, it's just a quick story. I won't name the camp, but it is a bigger camp in Texas. I mean, I'm naming this as a case example of why Black Outside exists. And this was in 2019. They called me and they're like, hey, heard about what you guys do. This is so great. Y'all run this awesome camp. Like, you know what I just thought about? Like, what it would look like for you to just, like, bring your girls up to our camp. And, like, you could save money and just drop them off. And we already have the counseling staff. And, you know, that'd be really cool. They were dead serious. And I was just like... You know, and this was a faith-based camp. And I'm thinking in my head, I was like, you really still don't get why 
our camps exist and why our families send their kids to us. It's not necessarily like, oh my gosh, like my kid has to be in a all black environment all the time. I, I think I would say if you were talking to some of the families, just like, I just want my daughter in this case to have an experience for once for a whole week where like no one's going to touch their hair. They can just explore their black identity, which is hard to do in spaces that aren't led or crafted or cultivated by black folks. So that's where like really the impetus for Black Outside really started is like healing, well-being for our youth. And then how can we create this space that is black led? Because, I, you know, what I do see in the outdoor education space and in the camp space, it's like rare that these are like led and founded by black folks. And just we just have a different not it's like better or worse, but a different lens on care sometimes for our youth, because, you know, we do understand or can understand pretty quickly Right. Uh, not everything, but some of the experiences that many of our youth are, are navigating, whether it's, it was us or it's a cousin or auntie that we had that went through some somewhat similar in the same bucket. Whether that's like navigating a predominantly white space, whether that's getting your hair touched, whether that's like growing up in a under-resourced neighborhood, whether that's like having a, a, a daddy that's locked up, like all these tangential things that we really can can help our youth navigate in the setting of the outdoors, which is so powerful. We're going to take a short break and come right back. I'm back here with Moira, who's agreed to join me for some more jokes and God talk. Wait, today can we do different questions besides God talk? Sure. Which kind of questions interest you these days? Anything about how I'm doing on my latest and greatest video game and how, and about Pokemon. Tell me, latest and greatest video game. You're not, you don't play video games. Yeah, I do. Prodigy. Ah, oh, your math game. Got it. I think our listeners are probably more familiar with Pokemon. So why don't you tell us who's your favorite Pokemon? Eevee, but my favorite, 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 favorite is Sylveon, one of Eevee's latest evolutions. Currently the most popular. Can you tell me about the other evolutions? Well, all Eevee possess unstable DNA from the start, allowing them to, e- to evolve into the eight different things, but they can only evolve into one of them. Each Eevee can only evolve into one, but they have eight different possibilities. Which Pokemon do you... No, which Pokemon do you think you're the most like? I think I'm the. I think I'm mostly like Glaceon. It's, it is a very mischievous but delightful Pokemon. You're definitely mischievous and delightful. Thank you for joining me today, Moira. thing you were saying about the camp that offered you just drop your girls off. I want to push pause and for any camp owners or resource people who are listening to that and thinking like, okay, hold on. What was wrong with that? Like just a, a, like a pro tip (laughs) that like to say, Hey, we have a camp. Would you guys like to use it is one offer 
Like, would you guys like to come use our facility and staff it yourself and like run your program? Here's one thing to say, let us handle the camp portion of it. And like, you just gather the girls is a different thing. We're talking about leadership and like this inherent belief that the, it is the leadership, the, the black and person, people of color who are leading black outside that are part of the big value add, not just opportunities for black kids to be outside as. And so um wanted to make sure I highlight that because I could see someone maybe hearing this and thinking like, so they shouldn't have like invited them. <laughs> like, no, you just have to like recognize the value of this. And the other thing I've thought about a lot lately with the experience of, you know, crossing lines of difference and being constantly having to be one of one or two people of color in a room in you know, predominantly white room that maybe some of the relief, like if you're going to go to camp and it's going to be recreational and you're going to be relaxing and all of that, like maybe not having to wonder what kind of white person you're in the room with mm-hmm. could be part of that. Because it's one thing to like deal with the actual issues that come up, whether they're like what we call microaggressions or just terrible questions or assumptions and and a whole other level is wondering if those are going to come up because like maybe your white counselor has been through really good training maybe they are yeah you know maybe they do know what they're doing maybe they you know have done the work but you don't know that and it's weird to walk up on first day, but don't worry. I've been through really right. good training. I'm not going to try to touch your hair. I think that's been an uncomfortable thing for white people to come to terms with is it's like the racial world we live in has racialized us as well. Mm-hmm. And so you are a racial body who is experienced by black people as a white person. Right. And in that you are connected to all the people who have tried to touch their hair. Mm-hmm. And white people really don't like that. We really want to be individuals. We really want yeah. to be standing on our standing and falling on our own merits. And what I think part of one of the next steps in this process that we're doing as a country that I don't think we're going to get to this time, but maybe in the next round, making white people reckon with like their role as racialized beings mm-hmm. and really interrogating making us sit with the discomfort of being seen as white rather than being seen as a journalist or a mom or this or that, you know, and it's flipping that G A Z E gaze around. And that's something that I think is uncomfortable for people when you, when they encounter things like, no, my black campers are more comfortable in a space where we shorthand it to say like people look like them. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the thing underneath the thing is that like this racialized presence of whiteness is not setting the agenda for them. 
whether or not that actually manifests in any kind of trauma or incident, it's the presence. And we have more work to do in navigating lines of difference, and that's great. And at the same time, as a parent, I could see a black parent being like, that's not what I want my kiddo to do this week. I want him to just go like backpack around and like have some spiritual time it's and similarly but with key different key and important differences it's women going to an all women's space as well Mm -hmm. like there is a difference in how you how i get away with my girlfriends versus how i get away with my girlfriends and our husbands Mm -hmm. you know there's a it's great it's great to learn to be in co-ed spaces However, there are just like we live in a we live in a racialized country, we live in a sexualized country, world, culture, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how good of a white person or how good of a man or how good of a whatever you are, you are connected to this identity that has that places expectations on those who are not you. Mm-hmm. And there's a time to exercise and there's a time to retreat. Yeah. For in our identities, I think. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're saying is that like for black youth, they're exercising constantly. What do you see the kids do once you get out there with black outside? How yeah. do you describe what happens to their demeanor yeah i think i think first and foremost you know i i just want to connect and affirm yeah i think i've always framed as like making space and taking space and so it's like i I do think there's time where folks you know along lines of gender like men have to not mansplain but like just be quiet and listen and then there's other times where like you know men need to call other men on the patriarchy bs when we're (laughs) on sometimes and so similarly i think like for along the lines of race i think there's times like white folks need to just step back and i've told like a lot of folks said that asked, like, how do you do it? I'm like, well, yeah, like, y'all need to make space for BIPOC leaders in your organization. Like, let them, like, think through some of these things or at least be a partner in it. So all that to say, I think, like, that's critically important. And that's critically important because when we think about our youth, you're right. A lot of times our youth are crossing, you know, lines of difference all the time. And that's another piece that I've always had to push back on when some leaders of predominantly white camps are like, what do you think about diversity? And I was like, you know, that's an unfair ask for especially our youth in San Antonio. I'm like, there's not many predominantly black spaces in San Antonio or Austin. You don't realize like literally on a daily basis, our kids are having to cross lines of difference. Like, you know, but you don't ask that same question of white youth that are in predominantly all white spaces or come from predominantly white towns. You don't ask them like, what about diversity? You know, like, and I think that's important. And so like, again, like going to like what our kids feel, I think, you know, so some of our youth, they like go to schools that are in historically black neighborhoods. So it's funny. They're kind of like, oh, cool. It feels like, you know, like the culture of this space, it feels like, you know, my school. But I think like the black outside is most beneficial to some of our youth that are growing up in neighborhoods that are like three to four or five, six percent black. And they come to us and they're like, man, like this is, again, the first time no one's like <laughs> touched my hair. I could just say what I want to say or like someone knows how to pronounce my name. No one's misspelling my name. You know, this counselor feels like my big sister or my big brother, right? Like like that feeling of feeling like home. 
mm. is the biggest thing. And imagine that in the backdrop of like, you know, the mountains of Colorado and feeling like we are cultivating this space that feels like home. And some of home is like beautiful. And some of it's like, you know, for some of our kids, they get out and they're like, bickering with each other which is like a typical teenage thing but it's funny even the bickering that we hear is very much like okay this feels like my younger cousins arguing with each other and so we try to cultivate a sense of home and so the more we cultivate a sense of home and the outdoors feeling like a place of home that goes back to that reconnection because it was home for us for so long and i think part of it is this is cultural shift where like like kids especially youth our communities of color feel like some in some cases feel like they have to assimilate into the outdoor culture right because it is where patagonia it is like wear these nice hiking boots it is know all these things be like bear grills and it's rare that they see people that look like them doing those things and speaking in the ways that like we would describe them yeah and just i speak more if you would to then because part of what i, I want to highlight is that like these experiences give them something. They give them something real. This is not just like, oh, that was fun. That's not like you're doing this because you believe it's actually beneficial, not because you think it's, oh, we want one too. <laughs> like, right. I don't know where some Patagonia. That is, there's an actual like transfer of resources and yeah, transfer of resources, maybe not even as much as like, there's an actual experienced benefit that comes from doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think like for our youth, like, you know, when we think about like, obviously like the racial piece is feeling like comfortable in their identity, but then cult being able, now that you're comfortable in their identity, you're able to cultivate an identity in the outdoors. You're able to say like one of our youth said, like said to me once, this is like this past year. And I almost started tearing up when she said it. She's like, you know, I think of like, I think of summer camp as like a black thing. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, like, because she'd only attended our camp. And she's like, what? yeah, I know it's a predominantly white thing to go to summer camp. But like in my head, she's like, Alex, I see it as a black thing. Because every time I go to camp, it's all black girls. They are all black campers. And so I just see it as that. And she feels comfortable in the space. And now she can cultivate an identity of what camp is. Because it's like, yeah, I was a summer camper. And like, feels like that's a part of her identity. And, you know, I think that's the like foremost thing is just like, how can we recultivate like identity, whether it's summer camp, whether it's just like, yes, I've been camping and I'm okay with that. And I'm comfortable with the fact that yes, I'm black. And yes, I like to camp. Yes, I'm black. And yes, I love being outdoors. And I think it's hard because again, along the lines of race, it's this idea that sometimes our kids are told too, to by even folks within our community, but outside our community through like representation and implicit messaging, this space is not for you. This is a white male space and you got to be tough and align your, you like to more patriarchal values and navigate the outdoors. And it's really unfair. And so I think that's important. And then, on, then you layer on top of that for our youth, we really try to cultivate a sense of curiosity with our kids and continue to not saying it falls on us just to start that our kids come to us curious and we just want to again cultivate it and maximize it even more we think about resiliency i've never said our job as a program is not to teach kids how to be resilient our job is to just show them how resilient they already are and so we do that through like going hiking up a really tough hill and we get to the top we're like look how strong you are look how like mentally you said you couldn't make it up and you did it and what what did you channel to do that and what's funny for some of our kids sometimes they're like one time a youth in this past June was like literally halfway up the mountain. He had to call his mama. <laughs> it was like, mom, I can't make it up. And the mom was like, you can do it. And he's like, okay, I can do it. And like every half step, he was like, all right, I'm doing this for my mom. And he oh, made it to the top, you know? And so knowing that family is like the anchor of your resiliency and mm -hmm. carrying that into like college, potentially when you get into a tough 
predicament. You're like, I have a D in a class. I don't know if I'm going to pass. I was like, wait a second. My family believes that I can do this and I have a network behind me. So I think the outdoors just holds a mirror in many cases to how your resiliency and what it's anchored in, your curiosity and, and how it's cultivated. When we think about collaboration, like how you're like, we as humans, we're wired to work together. Literally our one thing we always do when we start camping our kids, we don't ever set up their tents. Like we literally just drop off all the tents things. Then we're like, okay, y'all turn in a tent together. Y'all figure it out. If you need help, obviously we're not gonna let your tent fall, but you have to figure this out on your own. And just to watch teenagers who've never set up a tent before say like, okay, I gotta do this and work together to, to build themselves shelter. It's such a powerful accomplishment for our youth. We really try to cultivate all those things alongside obviously just creating the safe space for our youth. But I think that has to come first before those latter things can come. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Such it is. It's a holistic, embodied experience of so many of the things that then that spiritual connection to to God or their idea of God can flow out of. And I'm sure it's incredibly profound. At many times, I think many of us have profound spiritual experiences in nature, yes. and it really opens up that connection for a lot of people. And I think that when we're talking about, you know, building a new day, clearly a better reconnection and understanding of the importance of that and a more holistic understanding of ourselves as spiritual beings, embodied spiritual beings, this plays a huge role in that. And you're bringing in the equity piece makes the whole whole. Mm-hmm. In doing this, it starts to connect back to indigenous spirituality is very mm. much about the land and like the colonial disconnect from the land and the ancestors of black people being removed from ancestral lands by mm. force and how this repairing for a lot of people, our connection to the land were a lot of times taking cues from indigenous people who were here, but mm-hmm. either your ancestors nor mine started here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so for us to connect to it, my experience obviously being a lot of what I would consider repentance mm-hmm. and thinking about like, how do I reverse or change the mind, the colonial ownership mindset mm-hmm. toward the land I would love to hear more what that is for you. There's an amazing history you've, you've talked about, like Harriet Tubman and these outdoorsmen, outdoors women, people, but we're not indigenous to this place. Mm-hmm. And so to be nurtured by it spiritually is a little, I feel like there's a couple of extra steps that come along with that. And the struggle is to find a rootedness and a communion with land that is your new home, not your Mm -hmm. ancestral home or the home that like the stuff is in your DNA. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I think what we think about a lot for our youth and tell them some of them, depending on the outdoor experiences, yeah, understanding like, whose land this was before yes this park is called this but this was who was like here before mm-hmm. but then understanding like at some piece maybe it wasn't in this step or this <laughs> random piece of dirt that it's in but like collectively especially in the south like 
you know, we tell our kids, our, your, your ancestors' tears, their blood mm. like, is literally soaked in the soil. What does it mean to reclaim your freedom in that? What does it mean to feel like, look up at stars at night and see that these are the same stars that my ancestors looked at and imagined that like their great grandkids could just be feel free and tell them all the time 200 years ago right like mm-hmm. like your ancestors looked up at these stars and they did not know what freedom was all they could do was imagine the place that you're in right now to be feel free i heard um one lamont joseph white who i would definitely recommend checking out his work he's an artist and his whole theme is like black black people ski too is the theme that he has and he talked about this idea of the full circle embodiment of what freedom is he said like to go from the conditions of a slave ship to the conditions of the ski slope as black people you know his argument is like that is like literally the full 180 of like what freedom could look like to choose to go up a mountain right right and be cold and ski down and just like what skiing is and what skiing has historically been and who's been in those places for black people to occupy that space and feel free doing it and laugh doing it and play loud like r&b music doing it right is really a full circle thing and so i, I think about that, that on the activity piece with our kids like some of the things that they were exposing them to it's like yeah, this is like the full embodiment of what it means to finally feel free in these outdoor spaces. And, we, and it definitely don't, still don't feel 100% free per se. Sure. There's definitely still things that we encounter where it's like, oh, here comes the systemic racism, right? <laughs> here comes the like, what are you doing at this park type of thing. We definitely experience that. But to really step into that freedom for our next, even our next generation after us. So those are definitely the things that, that we think about a lot with like the tying to like ancestral land and knowing that there's obviously indigenous peace and layered on top of that, there's this like, Black folks piece that's there. I mean, I understand that we live in this in between with how we navigate land and space. But then lastly, just understand like, again, you know, I tell our kids like your ancestors long before they came to America were outside all the time. This idea that you can't be outside is just like, just fictitious because it's in your bloodline. Like literally if you if you went somehow back in time and talked to your great grandmother, they would be like, yeah, I'm outside all the time doing these things. And it doesn't mean outside has to be hard either. Like, you know, I think it's like, oh, it's labor. It's like, like, you can chill too. Were, yeah, there's like joy there. There's exploration there. When we think about ties to land and ancestral land, understanding like where our ancestors were in this space and what was the freedom potentially that they hoped for you. And then, you know, on top of that, like what was before this, right? Because we know colonization, industrialization, capitalism, those three things. And then the ways that like faith institutions support those things and have oh, yeah. historically supported those things have led to a disproportionate disconnect from the land for communities of color. I love all of that. I think it's so fascinating to think about because we've all experienced colonization differently. We've all experienced Mm -hmm. capitalism differently. We all experience reconnection differently. Like it's a different Mm -hmm. journey. And that, that, that kind of circles back to the other thing I wanted to revisit. I want to make absolutely sure that no one walks away from this thinking like, oh, so some amount of segregation is good. I don't need to worry that my camp's all white because this one's all black. That's a, <laughs> there's a nuanced conversation around affinity grouping. Mm-hmm. And again, it's another one that makes white folks uncomfortable because we, when a white person, if a white person were to say, I just want to be around white people, it is a different thing 
And so we'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah. So I think to start off, like, as we know, like some of the spaces that are predominantly white have different, will have different resources than spaces that are predominantly black. And this kind of, I mean, ties back to like, go back in time. What I finally had the realization of, which they're like doing like deep reading into Dr. King and Malcolm, like, if you really read Dr. King, especially towards the end of his life, it wasn't like Dr. King was like, oh my God, black people have to be next to white people all the time. And we have to like, you know, like just be together in this diversity. His The whole issue with segregation where this started was we just want the same resources and experience. Like we go to the black school, they don't even have textbooks. You go to white school, y'all and stuff. So if we got to bus our black kids to the white school just to make sure they have textbooks, we'll do it. But in the end, like, this all starts with, like, a resource issue. And I think that's where, like, Malcolm X came in and was like, look, forget the bus and we're not doing all that because we want our kids to feel safe. We just need the same resources what we demand. And I Mm -hmm. think that was, like, where the small divide actually happened. Lamar was like, look, I'm willing to do it if it means, like, we can get the same resources. And Malcolm, on the other hand, was like, no, forget that. We need our own spaces. So I shared to say, like, when we think about that today, by having a predominantly white space, that right there within itself already has power. And whether that's power from the sense of like access to resources, access to social capital, access to networks, most likely access to space, like land space. And so if that camp is just like, yeah, this is great, but you're not taking the time to inspect that power and unpack that and be real about that, then yeah, the space is is very much like... Is, is doing more harm than good. I heard one of my friends, she said this, she's, her belief system is that she's like, there shouldn't be, the only all, like really all male spaces there should be would be ones that at, at some end point support women in some way. I was like, yeah, if you have a bunch of men together, but y'all at no point, you know, and this is outside yeah. of like a one day thing. Like if it's like a school or anything, at no point are introspecting like what it means to be a male mm-hmm. and doing that in that space in support of women. If we're thinking about the gender binary here, yeah. like, then that's just a, another patriarchal space. And I would say similarly, you know, predominant white space, if there's no introspection really of like, not necessarily got to be like, oh, let's all feel guilty about. <laughs> yeah. That is not the purpose, but at least like, inspecting of what is the history of the space who's been included or invited why are they here why aren't they right are acknowledging like hey there isn't enough diversity here we don't have all the answers but this is something we got to think about you know if that's not happening i really would push a lot of camps to think through like why is that not happening because then you know it goes back to diversity question are your those kids learning how to eventually navigate lines of difference because it's a line it's a line of difference that definitely our kids know and can, can think about a lot so Yes. And I, I think the, a question like that I would pose if I were leading a retreat or something and I realized that everybody there was white, I think the question I would have to pose would be like, okay, what have we gained from this? And looking at, cause it's so easy to be like, okay, we spent $10,000 on this program. We're going to spend $10,000. Like we'll give you the check, but it's right. more than that. Thinking about capital right. and resources is as more than that. And then asking ourselves very honestly, like, what did I get from this? Like the the multiple different resources that are being allocated and not just picking one. Right. And who is that available to? What, you know, how do we make sure that this is available, whether through integration or whether there's an actual benefit to the affinity grouping Mm -hmm. and if there's a benefit to that and if that is like an essential part of what's going to make this 
beneficial. If the main benefit I get from a retreat is like, oh, it was just so nice to relax and be able to put my guard down. Mm -hmm. How do we as a society or as a group, like make sure that this resource of being able to let your guard down is allocated. I have to recognize that my presence requires Mm -hmm. guardedness from other people. So Mm -hmm. they're, you know, in a workshop, that's why you have affinity groups and, you know, in trainings, that's Mm -hmm. why they have them. Right. Where do our needs necessitate different places, whether Mm -hmm. it's gender, sexuality, race, Mm -hmm. ethnicity, all of those, like there's times when it's best to be together and there's times when we need to be apart and like the wisdom and, and maturity required to do that in a way that doesn't tip the resources mm-hmm. in one direction. <laughs> that to me is like just a very, a conversation that feels like everybody's going to cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. And I think part of that conversation, I think the nuance of that conversation that we have to address is that like, what lives in the nuance is that we live in a society of binaries where it's right. like either this or that, right? We're socialized into that. I think capitalism teaches us that. I think industrialization has taught us that it's either this way or that way or the highway. Mm-hmm. So like, I think there's like all these bottom lines that we're always thinking about instead of acknowledging our moving through uh, a world of multiple truths. And again, I think this ties to like faith-based institutions because- I think a lot of times, like a lot of traditional church theology teaches, like perpetuates this idea that there's only one way, or it's only one way to worship God. It's like, you have to come to church versus like, you know, I know for myself in terms of my faith journey, like I, you know, I I really started, you know, after most of my parents passed when I was younger as a teenager. Mm. So I was like, I was looking for refuge in spaces. And to me, it's like, I had been through church, grew up in church, going back to those church spaces is actually traumatizing for me just knowing some of the background of things that happened and also just like triggering of like, Oh my God, I just, all I can think about is like my family. And so like me finding refuge in the outdoors was a powerful space for me. And I think the more we able, we're able to make space to hold space for multiple truths and understanding going back to what you mentioned that these, like there could be two things true. Like, yes, like racial diversity is like important. I think it's super important. I would say like, I like for our kids, I like, my hope is that like they feel comfortable being in like, predominantly white spaces, but I realized for some of our youth, like the starting point is potentially could be us. They're like, okay, I feel comfortable outdoors. Great. Now I can go do this other thing. So. And the outdoor community becoming their community. Exactly. Can become a different piece. Like your identity can bond over different things. It has a unifying, you know, an education you would hope would have that as well, but we have to rethink some things. So yeah, all that to say, I think those things are important and you know i think the more we're able to make space for multiple truths of people's experiences realizing like they could have a beneficial just like some of our kids they we have some youth that come to our summer camp that like go to predominantly white camps and they come to our camp and they love both of them we need to make space that people can have multitudes of experiences and multiple truths within that experience i think the more we're able to do that i think that opens up our imaginations in our world so much. There is a deficit of imagination in faith-based spaces that really frustrates me, (laughs) you know, because especially in Christian theology, if you look at the art, it's so built on imagination. To imagine that, you know, Abraham was 150 years old or whatever the age was, there's so much imagination woven into the theology 
in the arc of the story within the Bible, whatever your faith system is, you at some point will believe that it's like a human thing we've been woven into our spirit to imagine. And so Absolutely. when we're able to cultivate that imagination, I think that's like our, the divine in us is like imagining and creating. And so the more we're able to tap into that, the more we're able to imagine like new possibilities for our youth, for especially youth of color, or for just like in the next generation of youth that they're that this that the racial tension that we have is not I don't think it's ever going to be healed in our lifetime hmm. but we're taking steps towards that healing process. Yeah. And that maybe there could be moments of healing for an individual along the way. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm going to wrap us up here just because I can't make a 2-hour podcast, but I have no doubt <laughs> that we could talk that long. All right. <laughs> Alex, thank you for being here. I admire the work that you do. It's so important and I'm so glad Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were encouraged, challenged, or something in between. If you didn't find the answers you'd hoped for, I hope you at least felt like someone else was asking the same questions. Please share the podcast with your friends and check the show notes for more information about my guests. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Moira and Asa, for supporting the podcast with their humor, and Lewis, my husband, for running down to get the power cord every time I forgot it downstairs. I especially want to say thank you to the very talented Rex Stardy for my new original intro and outro music. Joke Break Music is by Pink Zebra. And everybody, thanks for being patient with my little in-house production. I know there's a lot of sound and editing imperfections. I'm learning as I go. So thanks for hanging in there and have a great new day.